Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. Thanks to our podcasting partner, Full String Press, for this great studio, and to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hey, good morning, Mark. Oh, my gosh. I'm lit this morning. <laughs> I can tell. You're I, on fire. I know. That's what it is. You know why? I have no idea. We've got a, a, a what, 25-year friend in the house, Dane Howard. Dane, how are you? Oh, so glad to be here. Hey, Mark. Is it 25 years? It, it's been, it's sneaking right up on 25, if, if not, you know, but I was thinking about that on the way in as well. But uh, you're one of my very first mentors. Well, you were at art. You were going to Art Center down in uh, Pasadena, one of the top art colleges in the country, if not the world. Oh well, my way in is an interesting story because I I came into uh, here in Santa Barbara through Westmont College. Right. And I remember just being a humble fine art major, and the professor Tony Askew said, "Hey, you got talent, kid." <laughs> you ever thought about design school? And I said, what's design school? You ever well, thought about leaving our college and going somewhere? <laughs> yeah. So from a liberal arts college to basically just that was the foundation of me finding oh. the rocket ship that I wanted to fly for the rest of my life. Huh. And then so you applied at Art Center? How I, hard's that? You know, I would say, you know, ignorance is bliss because I just <laughs> dove in. I knew, I thought I wanted to be a 3D animator at the time. Hence coming to Wavefront. Absolutely. So I was just basically mashing up everything I knew about art, and I knew nothing about design. So you ever look back on past work and just kind of like cringe at like, oh, that's where I was? Uh, I went and just basically checked all the boxes of what they said a portfolio (laughs) would be. But what I fell in love with was design represented a way to mash up creativity and intentionality that allowed me to essentially make a living at what, it. What, what do you mean, okay, intentionality, what does that mean? So, in you, this context, you land at design school and you realize that, that art really, I had done photography, I had showed, but that was serving myself really. Hmm. You go to design school and you realize that you, it's a much more outward facing posture of design, meaning hmm. that it's meant to serve a customer or an audience that's not yourself. And for me, that was a really amazing journey to basically figure out what is empathy. And I didn't, huh. I didn't what know empathy. what that. Empathy. Yeah. So how do you empathy and design are two words that you can use in the same sentence? Yes, it's very big right now. So the thing about at the heart of what design is about right now, it's about understanding the customer. And to first live in the customer's shoes, you have to first take yours off. And so you learn this at the very beginning. But this has emerged as a really important tenet of design right now, is, is understanding empathy. When, but you say right now, but, but you were at Art Center 25 years ago. They didn't call it empathy then. They just called <laughs> it like concept. You have a concept. And one thing that's so amazing over the last 20 years is that design has moved from the posture of like decorative, almost the veneer, to being much more holistic. I mean, it's, it's, it's in, considered across the entire business now. So is it fair to, so I'm going to go from a soft, because my listener knows I'm a software guy uh, in one of my hats. Is that the difference between the user interface, which is what the software looks like, and the user experience, which is what the 
experience of using the software is all about. Would you say that's the difference? That's a great distinction. So it used to be that design used to be hired for a certain part of the process. Yeah. And so they would come in and it was much more positioned as a service to allow design to execute this part of it. What you're finding now is design is being acquired and brought into the entire view of a holistic product or service ecosystem. I'll give you an example. So emerging company called Airbnb, you've heard of Airbnb. Sure, of course. So designer founder, Brian Chesky, uh, went off and basically was studying uh, Disney. And Disney, uh, even in the Snow White, when they created the movie of Snow White, was very meticulous at storyboarding. We all know what storyboarding is. And he brought back this insight to say, you know, why would they plan all this intentionality around crafting each scene of a movie, but yet in Silicon Valley, why don't we ever storyboard our business? So he brought back hmm. this idea, and if you ever Google Airbnb Snow White, you'll see this story about how he was very inspired by how stories get told in Hollywood. Hmm. And all he did is he brought back, and he actually hired a Pixar storyboard artist, and he storyboarded his entire customer experience of an Airbnb customer. And if you go wow. into Airbnb offices today, you'll see a very specific wall with all of those frames. And in their audit, they realized that they had a lot of designers. They were working on websites. They were looking on mobile apps. But 100% of their designers were only allocated to 5% of the experience. And that was shocking for him. So all he did was sit back and go, wait a second. I need to design more holistically. We need mm -hmm, to serve our customers mm -hmm, better. Mm -hmm. So now if you work at Airbnb, you know what frame you're working on. You know what frame came before it. And you know what frame came after it. Hmm. And it's independent of role. So if you work on legal or finance or IT or design, you all get put into a team that is assigned to this part of the story. So at Pixar, in addition to a storyboard, so someone who doesn't actually know what a storyboard is, that's where someone is frame by frame, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and it mirrors the story, and you go into a big room and you someone's pitching the story to John Lasseter, for instance, right? What they don't know is there's rooms on either side of that. One of them is the color storyboards. So t tell us about that. Do you, know, do you know about that where it's like, okay, well, here's how the color is shifting through the movie and how the color affects our emotion. Yes. So a great bit of insight can be garnered just from watching the behind the scenes of Pixar movies. <laughs> right. I've got kids, and when the kids would go to sleep, I would dive into this because I was fascinated on this very premise of why is it that Hollywood has figured something out. Right. We all know about pre-production, production, and post-production. That's been around for years. Well, what I discovered is they were using something called pre-visualization, mm -hmm. and Pixar is relentless at it, and George Lucas has used it. Uh, Lord of the Rings used it, Iron Man. And here's the insight is that Pre-visualization represented a way of visualizing early in a way to help better plan out the production. Right. And so at Pixar, you have a relentless, intentional story. They get that right before they start because they, yeah, yeah. they know that animating is super expensive, takes a lot of... Once it's in the pipeline, it just goes and it flows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And I said, whoa, that's a tremendous insight. So similar to Brian Chesky, I said, oh my gosh, why is it that my own designers inside of where I work, big company or small, why are they allocated just to what we're shipping? So I started to ask this question, oh, could there be oh. a way that we could rehearse the future for the business and create this oh, risk? Okay, so, so rehearse the future of the business. Yes. Wow. And so I discovered this about seven years ago, and it opened up this whole world for me, is that there, we've all heard of the design agency that's hired from the outside to do something very tight and sweet. Usually they're really expensive, and usually you run out of time and budget. Right. Um, and we know some of these firms, and I always loved working with them. But what they ingest is kind of this outward thinking. I said, well, how might we create a group that serves just the groups internally and partners with them at the right time? And we called it Previs, and we started experiment with this SEAL team. And, and give us an example of a company where you did this. So I've done this at eBay. Uh, so what were you at eBay? So I headed up design for the marketplace's business, particularly vertical, so fashion, motors, electronics. And within that posture, I started this Previs group. Hmm. And at the time, I was so curious about how does even an internet company, which is perceived as innovative, they were really just shipping every six months incremental pieces. So how does a group help partner with the business to get momentum making going inside mm -hmm. the company? Mm -hmm. And so all we did was start to visualize hypothetical futures. How did you sell that to management? It sells itself. Because um, I'm thinking yeah. of the, the person listening right now goes, oh, that sounds kind of yeah. cool. How do I do that? But how do I sell the boss? Or if you are the boss, how, how, would, how do you do that? So a couple things. One, small team. Number mm. two, cross-disciplinary. So this is a team of about, I had a team of five, and they can partner with any part of the organization. And all they do is allocate design resources and workshopping to partner with a group that already has ownership over a particular area already. Right. So you usually jump right to products and services but you can behave like a mini IDO inside of a company and partner with mergers and acquisitions. We can partner with legal. We partnered with HR. Well, so give me an example of previs and HR. Great question. So one of the great insights for my life has been, well, yeah, you develop this craft of building teams for products and services, but you can also apply design thinking to culture and people. Because the moment that a company mm. realizes that their customers are also employees, right, right, you then start to think differently about things like their onboarding experience. I'll just use that as an example. Okay, sure. So think about a moment. Is, excuse me. Onboarding is corporate speak for a oh. new employee comes on. We just want to be buzzword compliant. Uh, so uh, an employee comes on, and it's that period of time before they're like, don't know where the bathroom is to where they're a productive employee. Could be anywhere from five days to five months. Exactly. Okay. So this narrative plays out. We've all experienced it. You get an offer. You, you, it's a huge decision, life decision. You're either moving or you're not. Let's say you sign that offer letter. Now becomes that so you moment. you thought about it from that very first, from they get the offer letter. Exactly, and that's where empathy comes in. You're starting to behave like that huh. person. And all you do is you start to map out 
all the sequence of events or hypothetical events that would make that experience better. Mm. And it turns out that a lot of it is shared experience. So there's the moment leading up to day one. There's day one, week one, month one. And that becomes kind of a, a construct by which you can improve the experience for a new employee. Now here's the catch. Most corporate organizations have legal, finance, HR, benefits, right? Sure. All these different jobs doing one little piece of the pie. When you reorient something into a customer-centric view, you have a better chance of stringing together all the experiences mm. so that there's no broken experiences. Mm. Now, this is what's so interesting, is customers never care about how you're organized. Correct. However, we always seem to like manifest, like I'm legal, I'm finance, I'm IT. And it comes out in these ways that are mapped to, well, that's my goal. I'm supposed to have this X amount of you know, progress this year. So for me, sitting back, using pre-visualization creates a story. And it's literally, you just tell a story about a future onboarding state. When you say, how do you sell it in? Well, it's a story of a better tomorrow. It's a story of a better onboarding experience. And what's wonderful is you can test it with your audience and your customers. And you march right into leadership and you go, hey, here's just something that we discovered and found. And they fall in love with a, that better future. Because you've wrapped it in a story. You've wrapped it in a story. And so story commands a premium. That's what I've learned across even hmm. early days in design school. Is that what your t-shirt says? If it had, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, well, we've been telling stories for four thousand. As soon as we discovered fire and campfires, we started telling stories. Yes. So however many thousands of years that is, yet it feels like story has taken on uh, a superpower in the last two, three years maybe a little longer, but it just feels like everybody's talking about story. And now you on this podcast have introduced the idea of how do we improve a boring process like onboarding by creating a story, by rehearsing the future of that, which is really interesting to see how, because I understand design, design thinking, solving a problem. How do I make a better toothbrush? Well, go brush your teeth and then feel that. But I hadn't thought about it in terms of onboarding or, or just the other, like any kind of process you have. Sure. So this, this characterizes one of the big shifts in design from when I went to design school. Mm. Whereas it's not just the, the application of a better part of the process. It's, it's really using design thinking as a system level. And so you're starting to realize that better design systems have implications across the whole business. And this is where design is starting to make huge impact in Silicon Valley and others that design is translating to experience and experience is differentiating in the marketplace. And so story for me was, like if I said, Mark, tell me a story, it's kind of deer in headlights. But if I said, Mark, why don't you just explain small little scenes that allow you to move from one place to the next to the next. And now it's like into smaller bits and hmm. pieces. And so that's how you would coach an executive, like an HR executive who's like, well, I'm not a storyteller. I don't know. I'm benefits yes. administration. And it's the balance between, so designers are emerging as these CEO whisperers. 
because CEO whisperer. Yes, it's like <laughs> I want to be one of those. Well, what, so do I. But I've seen it happen. <laughs> How fast can we get to the uh, domain names right now? <laughs> get on that. We'll have our crack staff on that. What kind of uh, Dan? What kind of um, are how are you investigating or taking in? So you're, you're going and sitting down with HR to, to, to figure out what, what their process looks like, and then you come back later with the story? Or how much research are you doing on the individual departments? Do you have to bounce around to everybody? Do you have to go talk to everyone? It's a great question. So you, you can tease out friction really quickly. Ooh. And okay. so a lot of the things that you – you don't really ask permission to partner with HR. Right. You, you essentially fall in love with this – question of how to make it better. And in a way, it comes from discovering friction in the system. You find your way to HR because you realize that they have either the people or the personnel or the process where mm. there is friction. And so rarely do we go to HR and say, hey. What, fr what friction do you have? Exactly. Because they would say, what, what are you talking about? We, yeah. we do a great job here. Right. <laughs> so, so by looking at it through the lens of experience, you, you start there and work mm. backwards. And then you find kind of the organizational um, kind of brain trust behind something. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's where I've usually found their success. But when you string it all together, you realize that the hardest part is now you have like three, four different groups that are all responsible for different pieces of it. And that's where, you know, I had to use improv, I had to use workshop. So workshop became this phase of my life where I had to arm myself and others around me with how do you how do you get people all on board together? And that was the era of like collaboration design, and collaboration design. What does that mean? Well, I mean in this context. So in this context, you know, IDEO and all these firms have been doing it for years, but it's basically a posture of the markers and the stickies. But it's it's not like what you normally would think. It would be around well framed questions on solving customer problems that are co shared. So you've heard of how might we? How might what? we? So how might we is probably. Uh, is that one of those leading opening questions? Yes. How might we? Yes. Now think about it for a second. How, which is in which way or manner. Might, which is the possibilities. We, all of us together. So if you have different constituents from different parts of an organization, it's not like, great, let's talk about a problem. And all right, Mike, you're, Mark, you're going to solve it now. It's more about how might we and then you mm. frame that as a question. And then in order to pull people into that question, you brainstorm around that. I and so the that. collaboration is about bringing inclusivity of all these different groups and having their ideas matter. So let's give our listener permission right now to hit the pause button and write that down because that's one. That's a key thing. Uh, I've, I've been to lots of workshops in my life. Huh? and. There's that one lesson you learn, that one thing that you take away and you use for 40 years. This is one of those. How might we thank you, Dane, for yes. that? Because that's what a great way to just open up any, any question. I, I was thinking last night, uh, by the way, we, we should let our listener know that your daughter, Chloe Howard, was on the TEDx stage recently. And they can go Google and find her video on TEDx Santa Barbara. But I was thinking about friction and in the ex user experience. So all these words are, this is all very real time for me. Thinking about the whole experience of attending the TEDx. 
from registration, from signage, from food, from someone greeting you, from a nice seat to good music, to the right lighting before the show starts, to all of those things. And I used the word friction, which is interesting. You said, I said, everyone, I want no friction. I want the audience to come in and not feel like they were rubbed. That's rubbed the wrong way. Right. They were rubbed the nice way. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting there, and they're as receptive as they could be. And then the experience for the speaker, the green room, the food, the hair, the makeup, the wrangler, all of that was all no friction. So that when they came on stage, they were able to just to just completely channel that transmission. Your daughter opened the show, and she was magnificent. But I think it was, now that I'm thinking, it was design thinking. But I wish that last night at our debrief, I had said those magic words, how might we? Right. Like, how might we improve? Because there was a lot of stuff that didn't work right that no one knew. Sure. But I love that. Thank you for that. Yeah. Sorry for my little yeah. sermon there. But. There's a, there's a. <laughs> it, was good. it was good. It was a okay. good sermon. Okay. You're fine. The, the yeah. primer for how might we is to create a, an environment where great ideas can exist. So you're a great improv guy. You know, in order, and I learned this from improv. So if we were all going to go to lunch together and I said, hey, let's go to lunch. And how about that place down the street in your leg? New no, choice. No, but I was just there. No, but. Oh, no, but. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so many times in order to get to how might we, you have to prime it with, hey, we're going to create an environment where it's okay to have to build on each other's ideas. So first you turn an environment to say, nope, no, no buts, but yes and. Move from no to the possibility of yes and. And that, as a system, you realize that it's the third or fourth or fifth idea that someone says that allows them to bridge something that they would have never thought of that gets you into a mindset of brainstorming. Do you think also when you're when you're when you have a group of people that you are are mandated to participate with that you can't really always in order to get them to have constituent buy-in you have to present those questions so that the ideas are from the group rather than you saying we're going to go get tacos at my place. And everybody's like, well, I, I might have wanted tacos, but now that he said it's his place, I don't really think I want those tacos anymore. Like, and, it, and that you're, you're teasing on a, a really important aspect of, a, of framing a, a question correctly. So if you understand that it's more important for us to be together and to be laughing, then it would be like, how might we enjoy lunch together where we're laughing and we're together? So you're looking to eliminate this agenda that you have as the person who's running the meeting or organizing yes. the, the experience. And so that's where the steward of the customer comes in really well. Mm. So it, back to empathy, back to customer. If you try to remove some of the baggage of the organization, the customer gets to be in the center. And at that customer, it serves the delight of the customer. It serves what the customer experience could or should be. And a well-framed question allows every constituent who essentially wants to do the right by the customer not to overlay their agenda of legal or their agenda of whatever they, they bring to them. So it's kind of like leading the witness. <laughs> I just I, I, I vision that idea of, of a legal person sitting there or the finance people sitting there saying, like, listen, all we know is finance. We can't talk to you about, you know, how the chairs are going to feel. Come on, that's somebody else's experience. And, and yet you're saying, but you're using chairs and you're, you know, like you're, you're getting them to buy in on topics that aren't necessarily, they don't think are, are theirs to, to buy in on. Sure. Well, this happens to me all the time. So they, they relinquish themselves from being creative or they relinquish yeah. themselves mm. from 
from participating. And I often have to adapt and say, uh, for instance, there was a, a story I tell about an engineer who was about, he was, a, he was our senior GM, and he had come up through engineering, and he was about ready to sign off on uh, the next phase of our industrial design. This has happened at Microsoft. And he had never signed off on this type of discipline before. And he was giving me a hard time. Hmm. And the meeting just before, he had signed off on a couple million dollars worth of software development, which was what he knew. Mm. And so I knew this, and, I, and we were stuck. And at one point, I just stopped, and I said, you know, you drive a BMW, right? He says, yeah. I said, do you like the sound that the BMW makes when, you, when it closed the door? He goes, oh, I never thought of it. And I said, well, does it feel safe? Yeah. Does it feel secure? Yeah. I said, well, that line item right there, that's what we're paying for in this project is that sense of safe and security oh, and comfort. Wow. Wow. And he's like, oh, okay. And he signed <laughs> off on it. <laughs> and so all I had to do was reframe an experience that I knew he had mm-hmm. to put it in terms and in a language that he understood. And then a lot of that as a designer is, is helping adapt the language and learning that language so that you can reposition it. Yeah, but it also sounds like you understood what his hang-up was. You 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 diagnosed him. To well, there was, he out. was empathetic. Yeah, you you looked right. at this guy and you said, if I was you, and I was comfortable with software, but not with you know the the, the hardware. Sure. Is that your superpower? You are really into superpowers I totally today. Totally am. <laughs> <You're just> I, <laughs> well, you know the 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 funny thing is is. Um, one of the things I learned in improv yeah. is you endow the other person, okay? It's like, I'm going to endow you. You're the queen. You're the king. You're the, oh, yes, your majesty. Give them a right? place to go. Right? Yeah. You, you empower them. And so I take the word power, and I like the idea of a superpower and asking someone what their superpower is. If you ask them, eh, well, I don't know, improv, you're not allowed to ask questions. So I can give you a superpower. And I think okay. your superpower is this you instantly go into the other person's shoes. You're, you're, that's so a part of who you are. What you said, the first thing was, I take off my shoes and I put on their shoes. And so you can't not do that. So manipulative. Just so, <laughs> such a, just trying to just, you're a dictator. Fascist dictator. Just, I'm going to get you we to sign this paperwork. We don't talk about politics. I'm going to get you to sign this paperwork no matter what. Oh, and all man. I've got to do is I've got to figure out what your hang-up is, buddy. And then I'll get you signing oh, this man. paperwork. I, I, wish it was, I wish it was easier. But the, the thing that, that makes me feel good at the end of the day is it serves not myself as much mm-hmm. as it serves mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's supposed to serve. In your customer. case, it would serve that project. I, this dude needs to let go some coin to do and this. It, and if you, if you dig it into it further is it what was built into that design solution and that exploration was something that was going to benefit the customer as it relates to quality, as it relates to the sensibility, whatever it might be. Have you worked for a car company? I did. I worked for BMW for a little while. I consulted At their design? Yeah, it's down down in Thousand Thousand Oaks, Oaks, right? Yeah, so I brushed up against them. um, Remarkable in terms of how they think. And I enjoy cars, but when you really immerse with How do you go to Art Center and not... I know. I mean, Art Center is one of the top automotive design schools in the world. People from guys who draw cards starting at six years old. It's like, oh, my God, Art yes. Center. How come they all yes. look like tennis shoes? <laughs> it's 
really upsetting. All the crossovers, every, they all look like tennis shoes. How come all the tennis shoes look, look like, like cars? cars? <laughs> That's a good point. That's a very good point. I, I'd like to ask you, because we, we've talked a lot on the show about questions. I'm The show is about questions, yeah. right? Um, I heard someone uh, the other day on a show say, well, what's the one question you ask? He says, well, I don't have one question. I have like... Someone counted the questions this guy had asked in an encounter, and it was 167 questions. He's writing a book. Yeah, yes. I don't know. I, and I'm writing a book. What are you book. writing a book? Yeah. <laughs> so what, in addition to how might we, what are three great questions to talk to that person who's not a design thinker mm. to get them in the right headspace, kind of the mm. getting started? Do, could do you have three? Well, three things come to mind, and they're going to be high level, but it's me reflecting back on how do you make impact and influence in this world. And the first chapter for me was really about learning how to design for products and services. And that's the discipline of listening, building the teams that the, that the organization would need to have world-class products and services. Yeah. The second was an insight where, wow, use this design thinking to then point the outcome at people and culture. So I'm fascinated with how, how could you use design thinking to help better create an environment of people that all work together. Okay. And the third is just emerging. And this is me looking back at the fact that I'm a father now of a 16-year-old and mm. a 13-year-old. And I said, mm. well, how might... How might I use what I've learned about design thinking and creativity and be a better designer father? Mm. And for me, this is so exciting because, as you mentioned, Chloe's world of being a 16-year-old and what she talked about on the TED stage, I realized that this, you know, oftentimes passion projects are things we choose. This one chose me. Mm. And so my ability to help her navigate that area, but also be a father and to instill some of these life lessons of how to pivot, how to look at things, how to be empathetic. She's not seeing that in her school, neither is my son. Mm -hmm. So a great mm -hmm. challenge for me is to look at it and say, wow, this third chapter represents not just an opportunity for me, but an opportunity for all those that know this and share this superpower to share it with the next generation. And to me, that's a, that's a, there's not a question in there, but I'm, I'm really mining it for how could I be a better designer father? I've not ever heard that before. That's because, No, I mean, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> which I love, right? Which is, what's also interesting, it's how you took your, your day job, so to speak, and said, how do I take those learnings and apply them back at home? I just, I, the family meetings seem in my mind really great. When you sit them down, you're like, how might we figure out yeah. this family vacation? Exactly. That's an example of where it would go disastrously wrong. But I'll give you an example. So, um, Oh, where it goes wrong. No, where it goes right, actually. Uh. So, so this, this is a, a delightful little treat. So I call this three-minute drawings. So my son and I, we were learning the just yes and, and I didn't package it in yes and, but it was basically we would do these drawings before you go to bed. Nice. And the, the kind of the guiding rules or principles is that 
you know, we hand over the iPad, they draw for literally one minute and then stop. And you hand it over to, and the, there's the rules you can't erase. You have to mm. build on mm -hmm. what they did. Exquisite corpse. Oh, I love that. And then I get it for a, a, a minute. And then he times me and he says, okay, dad's mine. I hand it back to him. And he gets to finish what he started, mm. but he can't erase what I've done. And these three minute drawings, I have, I created a whole book of them and I really? gave it to him for Christmas, but we did it, we've done it for years. And the thing that's so great is in three minutes, you've basically built on each other's work. You're laughing hysterically. I bet. Because everything turns into an animal or a face or something hysterical. And you're, you've, you've basically taught them the subtle difference of inheriting someone else's work. Right. And not, right. And not right. killing it, but building right. on it. And doing with what you have. How many times does that happen in the real world, right? <laughs> Every Wednesday night. So, so yeah. to me, that's an example of an exercise that I, I get to pass that. on to my kids. And it was so funny because he then would have, um, you know, a buddy over to play. Mm -hmm. And they always disagree about what they're going to play, <laughs> right? But I actually heard him be like, okay, we'll do that. Yes, and then we can go play this oh. other thing. And he was he was using the language on his own, mm -hmm. without so, even probably. Oh, cause yeah, yeah. Because you taught it to him. <laughs> That's weird. You taught him taught him how to do something, and, right. and then he, he used it in his regular life. That's yeah. So That's so this insight. So you know, there there comes a moment in in our career where we we somehow want to give back. For me, I started a relationship with uh, Lynda.com many years ago, mm. and I s enjoyed. The, the benefit of creating titles of what I would call life skills for creatives, things I never learned in school. <laughs> and Can someone go to lynda.com and find those? Yeah, just do a, a search for lynda.com, Dane Howard. And I, for me, I've used their format as a way of putting some of myself into these lessons that I've learned. So you'll think, see things up there around how to pitch projects and products to executives. You'll see things up oh. there about this previs. So oh. for me, these are like documentary shorts of how does previs work for automotive, for instance. I mm -hmm, went back and mm -hmm, visited mm -hmm. my buddies at BMW. How does previs work for product design or video? And so I just did a couple of these series that just fascinated me for a couple years. But it was a way of giving back. So set in that context, I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to pass along some of these great things to my kids so that they become better collaborators, Better, better critical thinkers, better brainstormers. I mean, as we're seeing that the emergence of creativity is like and grit, those two things I wish my kids creativity had. and grit. Well, grit. There's a lot that that they speak to on TED about grit, but it's essentially the perseverance piece. Yeah, and ego strength. Mark calls it. Yeah, yeah. So. Thank you for giving me a superpower. I don't know what it is other than just trying to be a better listener every day and trying to reframe that in a way that I can authentically invite you to come with me on a journey. You, um, I'm going to post uh, in the show notes the mind map that you gave oh, me. Yeah. Uh, as, um, for those of you who don't know what a mind map is, uh, look at a picture, you'll see this. It's just a drawing that you made yesterday in your flight home from the East Coast of just all the things, like your give was, I'm going to be on a podcast. What might I talk about? And you just started and drew. And so when someone sees this, they're going to love it. I could probably spend 100 hours talking to you. But one thing that came up was the future of memories. And I think of the word memory to me, 
past tense. Exactly. And now we the future of memories. What what did that mean to you? So the future of memories is a title of a book I did uh, many oh. years ago. Yeah. Oh. So I had the pleasure of of diving into one of my passions, which is photography. I had a chance to interview hundreds of families, and I realized that how we behave around our photos is, you know, that's a whole career in itself. How we behave around our photos. Correct. And so what happens usually is is this fascinating need to want to preserve memories. Hmm. But it was, for years, been thwarted with friction until the mobile phone came along. And then a lot of, so I've been, I've been on this 10-year journey of how to publish photos and to capture memories in a way that doesn't feel so daunting, but feels like you're just building a life's work of memories. And so I talk about this in the book. But the future of memories represents that journey of all the technological innovation that we have yet still to see. Mm. And we have seen a lot since 2003 when I started. But it comes down to this daily behavior of observing, seeing, and emerging as a better photographer, regardless of what you carry. And then not having those images sit on the SD card or not having those images sit latent, but use a practice of sharing in a way that aligns with your lifestyle and with your audience. So do you have a point of view on the relentless sharing of the 16-year-olds? <laughs> just just lifting those 16-year-olds up as if they're, they're I'm the sorry. ones. No, yeah, I mean, it's just, I'm just thinking that th there's something about let's, let's, let's just live our life, sure. right? I'm, and I'm showing my age. I'm, sure. Just live your life, dude. Don't get your face away from the camera. And then there's the, and I'm reminded of touring Versailles back in the day, mm -hmm. being behind an Asian tour group where they all were watching through sure. their video camera and they mm -hmm. never looked sure. up. Reminds me of the 16-year-olds who it's all about selfies and photos and what sure. I'm doing. And that's I was where a, I was going. Well, I was at a, a wedding where uh, a boomer father uh, sat right behind his bride daughter and uh, watched the entire event through his iPhone. And I've seen that more than once, wow. you know, right? And, and yeah, I think right. that's your point, yeah, right? Yeah, that's is exactly that it. There's yeah. this filter we're putting in front of right. ourselves. So what's really shifted is the, that sharing has become so easy that now the audience is everyone. All you have to do is unfollow. But the position I kind of like to look at it is how do, how do you create a body of work that you'll enjoy in the future? regardless uh, of audience. Isn't that, 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 that term right there, the body of work, uh, implying an editorial decision-making inside yeah, yeah, of it, yeah, implying yeah, 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 a, yes. exactly what you've been talking about, about this overlaying, this, this, this um, visualization of, of anticipating, oh, I'm going to have this voice. I'm going to be the author of this, rather than I'm just going to be the experiencer of this. Yes, and so I talk a lot about how do you create a body of work, and that's, that's really... The future of memories is about creating a lifelong behavior that creates mm. the body of work. Uh, one of my gifts to Chloe when she was born, she was a millennial baby, was ChloeHoward.com. <laughs> smart. And, very smart. And I didn't know it at the time. So I, if you can imagine me hand-coding like these pages in 2000, right. just trying to figure right. this out. So you talk about friction, right? But <sighs> she, one of her favorite things to do is to look back and see the body of work of herself growing up. Now, granted, it was a website. It was never really intended for mass audience. It was my learnings through creating that for her 
which created the point of view to say, wow, one day I'm going to have to hand this over to her. Mm-hmm. Does she have an Instagram mm-hmm. account now? Yeah, she does. But there's a point by which she's going to start to take on the body of work, which is her life. Who she decides to share it with is her own prerogative. So I think that the pendulum has definitely swung sure. on this. Sure, sure, Like, we can't separate, you know, the stories from the noise anymore. Mm. But if you look at it from a standpoint of just editorially empowered to publish a body of work, we are so well equipped. And so that's really the, the foundation of probably a glass half full of where the book should have been. I just, I imagine, I, did you make zines when you were a kid? Did you ever do the photocopy? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a publisher of my own work. And like the most we had at the time was like, <laughs> like access to somebody's photocopier that right. wasn't using it at night. And you would like just run off like 300 copies. You'd be like, I'm, I'm, a G, I'm, I'm exploiting. I'm a publisher. <laughs> and it's like now they can just click, click, click. Yeah. Exactly. It's so easy. It is. So I, I, I kind of fell into it. Uh, I believe there's this... Um, this new gene that is, expresses itself when you become a father, when you all of a sudden want to tell, <laughs> yep. you know, <laughs> or a grandfather. Welcome to the, cl- welcome, right. welcome to the club. Exactly. So <laughs> I, got, I, I got that gene. But, but the, the careful uh, journey of saying, okay, when is it uh, appropriate for grandma? And she's saying she can't oh. get enough, but everyone else is saying enough already. Hmm. There is uh, Apple just released iOS 10 yesterday. Yeah loaded it up and there's a new button on your photos in the bottom called memories Mm. you click it and it automatically compiles a movie of the last three months images Mm. into and then you have some some choices some emotional choices Mm. around the music it uses and then but there's no editorial so Mm. i mean i i did it and then i showed it to someone last night and they go well those are the best memories of the last three months? How, who, mm. how does it know? Mm. And it was interesting, yeah. too, that mm. editorial point yeah. sure. to go in and say, oh, Alg- la, 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 la. Algorithm. Algorithm. Yeah. Yes. Algorithm. Yes. Well, Some brain is figuring that out. You, you mentioned the mind map. Th- these are just triggers for memories. Right. And right. so right. if anything, like, regardless of where the software engineers take us on this journey, where they're probably going to get it right is hitting on the best triggers that trigger the best memories. It's just that their authoring won't be the memory. Mm. It'll be that they've found Mm. better insight into technologically what represented a a trigger for a a stronger emotion. If it was easy to do software design, everybody would do it. Exactly right. Uh, Aren't they? Let me, uh, (laughs) yeah, 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 apps are us. Great idea for an app. Oh my God, I can make an app. I'm really interested. We, we've talked about all the positive and good. There have got to have been some dragons in this story, and I'm sure there was one pretty good-sized dragon that, that you slew and came back. Slew? Slayed? Uh, past tense. Let's, have, let's get our crack researchers on that. I slay. I slay. Oh, there you go, the present tense. Yeah. Which, give, give me an idea of one of those dragons. So... The one that comes to mind is uh, a not very great stat that my wife and I had where we had moved 10 times in nine years. Mm. And I look back on that and I was chasing a dragon of everything that was exciting and everything that I was curious about. So I traded the excitement of the, of the work for what 
the tax it brought on our family. Mm -hmm. The cadence in my life has been moving from small company to big company, big company to small company. I've had the privilege of, of founding a couple companies and having them be bought by big companies. Um, and so I think right when I, in 2008, we sold our company, Viewbox, to eBay. And I said, that's kind of enough. But the satisfaction I had in that particular year represented this whole, I would say, slaying of the dragon. And that's when I started to give back in a much more meaningful way. And for me, the pursuit of the work was more about living in the humility of just what I do and giving it to others. And that's where I started teaching a lot more, doing a lot more mentoring, advising. And so I'd say, you know, giving up the, the pen or the, the individual contributor pen and just feeling much more satisfied around the, some of the things I had accomplished. But the dividends in my family now are paying off much more uh, by not having this relentless pursuit of, of, of going after it. What's next for Dane Howard? So right now, I have the pleasure of working for a, a company called Trove. They were an advisory company that I'd worked with but they're reinventing insurance, which um, is amazing. Wow. Right? Seeing as how one of our sponsors is an insurance company, um, we're all ears at this point. Well, the, the thing, this is a 300-year-old industry. And if you think about huh. the how insurance was put together, it's like a blunt force object. And so just like we used to buy albums and now we buy songs, uh, Trove is doing that for insurance, where you essentially can have agency and control over what you want to protect. So if you bought something, let's say at the Apple store, you forward the receipt, immediately gives you a quote, and you can protect it in the morning and unprotect it on, you know, in the afternoon. As it like. needs protection, as it falls into a place where it, Yes. Yeah. So you basically swipe to protect, and mm. if you step back and look at it, we've completely uh, taken, walked away from the old and built a cloud-based insurance platform soup to nuts in the cloud that's mobile enabled. So Trove is having a really great moment right now because if you think about how the world is changing and shifting, mm -hmm. there are transportation services now where we stand on the curb and you, you, you hail the, the car. Yeah, a minute later. And the car comes and you get in. Well, that's the start of an event. And then you, that event ends when you get out of the car. And if you notice today, you, don't, you seamlessly don't have to pay them or there's no transaction, it's all rationalized. With well, a rationalization of uh, protection and insurance, there's a huge benefit of having an insurance platform that can keep track of a start and a stop. So we're working in uh, many different countries right now. We're, we started in Australia. We're, we'll launch in uh, the UK uh, mid-November. But we just announced uh, a deal to have a partner that will bring us to the US mid-2017. I'd love to introduce you to the Tolman and Weicker folks because they're very forward thinking. Yeah. And uh, I think they're 100, over 100 years old uh, here in the region. <laughs> All of them? Yes. <laughs> Little caps <laughs> walking around the camp. <laughs> they with the green I'm visors. I'm Tolman, I'm Weicker. <laughs> this is our insurance. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's shocking. I'm sorry, the visual. No, it's shocking. No, yeah. they've got hyperbaric chambers Not in, right. in every office. That's what good insurance leads to, longevity. That, yeah. I want to end it on that, uh, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not going to because I'm going to give you the opportunity as we do at the oh, end yes. of every show, which is um, we've had this great conversation, and we've mm -hmm. talked about 
um, uh, my notes indicate that we talked about a lot of different things. Um, if someone has just come into this show, they didn't know us, they knew you and, and they said, oh, I'm going to listen to Dane. This is a great show. Thank you very much. But now they're going to look at a list of all 100 plus titles and they want to pick the next one. The title matters. So what's the title of this conversation? For me, I, I go back to these three ways that design can help someone. You and get five words. <laughs> you can have three ways, but five words. How design can help you in products, culture, and parenting. Products, culture, and parenting. I'll get a title out of that. I think that's it. Products, culture, and parenting. Dean, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And this and you you took the train down. So I was on the East Coast, uh, and I flew to L.A. Took the Santa Barbara Airporter, which is great, and I take the train up to the Silicon Valley uh, this afternoon. So. I'm enjoying uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you. That's a perfect out. Dane Howard, thank you so much for joining us here. Um, I want to, how could someone find out more about you? Do you, is Dane, I'm going to guess danehoward.com. Danehoward.com. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, Standbeautiful.me is Chloe's story. Yeah. And uh, check out what's happening at Trove, T-R-O-V.com. Beautiful. Uh, thanks again to California Lutheran University School of Management and oft-mentioned Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio. The 805 Connect Project, now in our third year, is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. I want to thank them as well. More information on them at 805connect.com. Patrick, yeah. Uh, the someone who came in there our first time listener. Yeah, how can they, they help us? They enjoyed this. How could they help us? I uh, I too went to art school and I know that there's a lot of parents out there struggling with the decision of having a creative child in their house and uh, what to do with them and and your fears of their future. Uh, so what you do is you go find that friend who has that creative child and you make them listen to this podcast and any of the oh, other podcasts here yes. but you can hear what an art education can turn out. Uh, which is a person who is well-balanced like Dane and able to make a comfortable living, I assume, uh, and uh, raise beautiful children and live a happy, healthy life with with being a designer and an artist and a creative. So, Because um, there's a lot of parents that are a little freaked out about that right now. So uh, get them on board, get them subscribed, rate, write, review, let us know uh, what we're doing right, and uh, tell Mark because he's desperate to find out. I, I live for your email, so... Stop right now, put down <laughs> your phone, drop me a note, mark at 805connect.com. Tell us what you like about the show or give us an idea of someone who is fascinated in your life that I should reach out to and invite to come onto the show. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.